Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association. With me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to further understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 16th of May, 2022, and this is episode 255. On this week's programme, I talk to historian Dr Alexander Jackson, curator at the National Football Museum in Manchester. I talked to him about his recent book, Football's Great War, Association Football on the English Home Front. This is published by Pen and Sword. Alex spoke to me from his home in Manchester. Alex, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in association football or soccer on the English home front? Uh, yes, I, I, thank you very firstly, thank you very much for having me on the on the podcast. Uh, I'm a curator uh, at the National Football Museum in Manchester, and I sort of first became interested in this particular topic uh, when uh, I started working on an uh, exhibition we did for the centenary of the start of the First World War in 2014, and we did an exhibition around football or, uh, and the First World War, so that wasn't just the home front, it was also the front lines, and so it was a really great project. We got to dig into our collections, uncover untold stories, uh, find out what gaps we had and start to fill them. So what was in other people's collections? And then one thing that came out of that was a bit like in the wider historiography of, of the First World War. There's a lot of an emphasis uh, on the front lines. I mean, you, a little bit, some of the better known stories were about players who went to war, what happened to them there. Uh, some of the other, uh, other famous incidents such as the Christmas truce or there's some of the, the historiographical debate around that uh, and the famous charge of the uh, the Surreys and the Irish, uh, I think it's London Irish Rifles in 1916 and 1915 respectively. Uh, but within that, the Holmes front story, um, outside of the history of women's football seemed to be relatively unknown. It was the bit that we had less information to do the exhibition. Uh, and so madly, after we'd finished the exhibition, you obviously move on to other things. And I, I bizarrely decided to keep researching away in my spare time. Um, uh, and I quickly found there was a lot of really interesting material uh, that linked to a lot of the bigger, wider uh, discussions about the home front. But also there was this untold story about football's own story. And so I've been researching that over like it's getting on for like eight years now. Or so. so, yes, that's where I come to it. <laughs> So to give us some background, tell us about the organisation of football, its scale, spread, cultural importance in English society and how widely the men's and women's game was played before the Great War. Well, there's a lovely way to sort of go into this, which I do in the book is uh, uh, to reflect on this, because in 1913, the FA is actually celebrating its 50th uh, anniversary. Uh, and it's a lovely moment. We have some lovely items in the collection, uh, some of the, the banquet men, menu and programme. And when you read the newspaper reports, look at the cartoons at the time, you have this sense of sort of this sort of it's a bit of almost a cliche, that confidence of uh, an association that had gone from being a small number of clubs for middle class and upper class men in the 1860s. Uh, for a game that then by the 1913 developed into what we could recognisably, I think, say and call uh, the modern game and that you had at the base, you had this grassroots uh, amateur game uh, played by anywhere between 300 and 500,000 players uh, ranging from old old Etonians and their public school, ex-public school sides, all the way down to uh, across to uh, Durham pitmen 
uh, playing in their amateur sides. And then above them uh, is in this in this very sort of rough pyramid, if we imagine it in in rough terms, uh, the semi-professional game, uh, right up to the elite professional game of the sixty odd clubs playing in the football league. Uh, and the Southern League, uh, what you had was a bit more regional um, differentiation than that the Football League had 40 clubs, uh, many of which we're familiar with, Manchester United, the Chelsea's, the Tottenham, Aston Villas. Uh, the Southern League actually had quite a number of some uh, top Southern teams like Crystal Palace, Southampton that we're familiar with. Uh, they moved into an expanded Football League after the First World War. Uh, so you have that right at the top. That's a game that's watched by tens of thousands of spectators at each game, uh, each weekend. You've got millions across, uh, millions and millions across the course of a season watching. And, you have the, and within that, you have the FA Cup, which, although sadly today is not sort of uh, the prestigious competition it once was, was then was the, the Blue Ribbon event. And in 1913, you have, I think, a crown of over 110,000, about 113,000 uh, for Aston Villa versus Sunderland. Uh, and that is the largest attendance for an FA Cup final at that point. And so it's this big mass uh, spectators, consumer sport as well. Uh, sorry, it's part of the consumer culture. Uh, on the flip side of that is women's football uh, has a very limited um, uh, uh, existence and that there's been uh, women playing since uh, the 1880, in the 1880s and the 1890s. These tend to be relatively short lived because there's less popular support for it. It hasn't developed as a grassroots game. Uh, so women do do participate, uh, do engage though, partly through uh, attendance. Uh, uh, there are also some women also are shareholders at clubs. Uh, and also, interesting enough, because this is the pre-first, uh, obviously pre-first world war, uh, football is the site for football grounds, the sites for suffragette attacks, uh, which is quite interesting in the as sites of obviously uh, uh, big areas of um, uh, typical areas of male um, sport and entertainment. So alongside golf courses being attacked, or football grounds uh, being attacked, and some attempts to and some successful attempts, successful attempts to set parts them on fire as well. So there is some damage caused to one or two. Uh, and also a bit of hostile reconnaissance, as we might call, towards the 1913 Cup final with the name of trying to sabotage that as well. Um, so, yeah, so it's this, um, it is the big modern game. And with, it, with, with that come a lot of concerns about its place in society. It, should it be something that's purely recreational? Uh, should you, uh, on one hand, should you just play for the fun of the game? On the other hand, it's also a, a, an activity, a work activity for men who get their living out of it as players or associated as managers and trainers etc uh, and so there are tensions around that because you have this at the level of the FA you have an unease with this with people who can remember the days of the amateur days before professionalism so they are uh, and across the side as a whole there's this side there are concerns about has this gone too far is there too much money in the game oh, player crisis, prices for players too high should there even be such things as transfers are there too many foreigners which mean that era means are there too many Scots in teams? Uh, should it be a game played by local players? So in various different ways, there are lots that recognize debates that we can recognize. Uh, and that's sort of where the game is sort of on the eve of the war. And were, were there sort of professional players um, in a way that we would recognize them that thought they were, they were full-time paid a wage by their club, say Accrington Stanley, and or were they sort of working in the mill or the factory for five days a week and then play at, on Saturdays? You have a mixture, very much like today, at the at the very top, uh, amongst your elite professional clubs, uh, you'll be have a you will have full time professionals. You do 
maximum wage then, because the year of the maximum wage, you paid about four pound a week, which is roughly twice what an uh, average pay of a working class man. Uh, you could possibly get a bit more with long term services or pay, uh, bonus payments for like wins, uh, that kind of system. Where, again, we're familiar with. Uh, Below that, you would then have the semi-professional where players would have jobs. I should have said also uh, players at the very top elite job player clubs would also sometimes also have jobs as well. And that was with the idea that it's best to start your post-playing retirement plan or post-playing plans during your playing day. So some players would own shops uh, or might, uh, if they're middle class might be playing, uh, might be working as teachers during the week and receiving a full wage as a player as well. Uh, and then you get down to the semi-professional ranks. Uh, and that time football did have, like today, English football had a very large number of semi-professional clubs in the, again, sort of regional leagues, Northeastern League, uh, so like the reserve teams of Newcastle playing along then other professional sides in the area. And so at that level, you might get paid less. It might be like down to maybe a pound or so many shillings a week. And that's obviously supplementary to having a job, off like, which would often be quite typical. Miners, working in factories, uh, that kind of sort of stuff. So um, it, it is at that level, it is still quite different in terms of the, the, the amount of money that they comparative to today. Uh, uh, and I'm trying to think what the top the top transfer fee around then was just going up to about two and a half thousand pounds, I think, or something like that, on the on the eve of the war, something like that. And I mean, I, I, I suppose put that in context. Um, the tech, the income tax rate, I think, was 150 pounds, and that's probably what a subaltern would be paid uh, mm. a second as tenor. So that gives you an idea. So, and that brings us neatly onto the war. So, how did football, in terms of the authorities, the amateur game, the professional game, react to the outbreak of war in August 1914? I think so. It's interesting when you get into this. It very much like uh, I think now the sort of the uh, I think the sort of more commonly accepted view amongst I think uh, within the historiography that it rather than being a enthusiastic response to war there's uh, the, there's a sort of immediate sort of shock and react uh, shock reaction to it uh, and you see that within the football community that like in the newspapers at the time they sort of have cartoons showing like the football season being over overshadowed by this giant looming cloud of uh, storm cloud of war and so fundamentally like the rest of society they've got to decide what is an appropriate response uh, I, do you continue like do business as normal uh, as usual as, as the prime minister asked on that sort of economic side to avoid disruption or do you try and uh, react differently do you uh, do you react to the call for volunteers to join up do you volunteer your time or money and so what is interesting across the football community you have a, a range of different reactions um some people want to stop straight away. Uh, one body within, sub-body within the Football Association is the Amateur Football Association. And that was a group for more middle-class Southern-based clubs. Uh, they'd had actually a split pre the First World War where they'd left the FA over issues around professionalism. And there's a group of very much like uh, the rugby union uh, authorities and players. They uh, shut down their season straight away and they seem to join up in very large numbers because in essence, they are from the same class background. They are, they are the the the, the young men who played foot, association football at public school as opposed to rugby and it's a very similar response uh, probably seen best seen by one of the teams called famous teams at the time called the Corinthians who were the sort of the banner headline for that particular side of the amateur game they they were off actually at the start of the war they were sailing off to um, Brazil to go on tour so they arrive uh, by the time they arrive uh, war's been declared so they literally get off the boat find that war's been declared 
they get around, go straight back on the boat because some of them are in, in the arm themselves, like territorials, uh, and then others are just going straight back up to join. And so by nineteen fifteen, early nineteen fifteen, they can have a Corinthians in arms game where it's all all of their members who are in the forces playing an army team in the depot uh, in the sort of the training area where they're based. Um, the on the other hand, so at the county FA level, a number of counties decide to shut down straight away others where they've got more professional clubs see the value in having wartime sport to keep for men who can't join up because obviously not everyone can join up uh, for various different reasons partly also because you need people in factories and shipyards to help uh, total war be fought um, so the fa comes out with the line of sort of like you know people should go and join up and we greatly encourage uh, think every man who can do that should do that at the same time, those who can't should have an activity that they can continue to do and to go and uh, either do or to go and watch and to shut down the game entirely would cause too much disruption and would unfairly hit those who rely on it, who are overage, uh, you know, people who work in the industry but who are overage and can't join up. So, sorry, that's a sort of a long answer there, so to speak, to that question. Um, uh, and that that what that means is then that the season continues in 1415 uh, at the professional level, which then leads into further controversy as the season goes ahead whilst we in Britain they start to get further news of uh, as the British army starts to come into contact with the Germans on the on the western front. Is this what would be known as the anti-football debate that takes place in 1914-15 and did it also apply to other sports as well as a, um, besides football? Uh, yes and so yeah it is part of obviously football gets to a degree singled out but it is as you say part of uh, a wider debate about the place of entertainment and sport I think it's probably best to put them both together because at the time people did that because football is singled out uh, also the musicals to a degree as well uh, uh, it's very interesting that horse racing uh, a very commercialized sport uh, which involves a huge amount of gambling uh, has a large professional workforce uh, is not picked out in the same way, which might be something to do with the fact that obviously a lot of aristocrats and uh, people of that class uh, are heavily invested in, in various different ways. And that's a point that's brought out at the time. Uh, horse racing does come in for criticism at different points, I think later on during, in sort of through that sort of 14, 15 period. Uh, but the, at the beginning football is quite clearly coming in for a lot of criticism, uh, partly because you can see a sort of a clear differentiation between rugby union uh, although the thing that sort of needs to be almost said still now is when sometimes the two sports are compared is that rugby union was an amateur sport uh, and professional and football encompassed both professional and amateur responses, uh, 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 body uh, groups rather. Uh, and so what's actually been underexplored and was underexplored at the time is the response of amateur players within the, within the association football. Uh, but yeah, so it involves a very sort of, uh, at times, very... Uh, bitter, heated, vicious uh, debate on both sides. There's an awful lot of what I almost call that propaganda being thrown at it. Uh, and so you have hostility from certain segments of society, uh, uh, some who have been opposed to football pre-war or unhappy with its commercial aspects. And so that's almost like a unease with uh, some of the working class elements of the game and the commercial side. But I think at the same time, it's also important to recognise that some people did find it problematic and quite understandably. So when uh, there's like letters from people who have had sons who have joined up and they've been killed quite early in the war, uh, to see a large crowd of people at a game on a Saturday in their mind as if nothing's particularly different 
it was obviously very challenging for them. Uh, and so there is that emotional reaction to it as well. Uh, at the same time, you have like some of the elements of the conservative press uh, being duplicitous, using photographs of pre-war games uh, for arguments around this very sort of tortured logic to all, and also unfair calls for selective conscription to say all, all footballers should be you know, forcibly conscripted, um, which is obviously, well, if you're going to have conscription, it should be for everyone. And that's what the football people very early on, on the football side are actually calling for conscription as the fairest way to solve these debates, which obviously, as we know, take several years to come to fruition in a sense. But early on, you have people within the football community saying like, well, if we're going to have this, then we're, you know, we're going to have to, you know, either shut down all the music halls and all this kind of stuff. If we're going to have equal criticism or if we're not going to have it, then we need to have conscription and then everyone can go. Uh, or rather, we can be decided on their use to the nation. Um, but, um, but at the same time, whilst there's a lot going on, the football football still continues to be played and the FA Cup does not get cancelled as there are some calls for it and that uh, continues. So in some ways, there's a very big hostile debate to it that I think sometimes is seen as sort of essentially deciding football's fate. And at the end of the 14-15 season, football uh, sort of uh, shuts off some of the professional side of it. And I think then at that point, historians think, or some historians I think have interpreted that football ends as a meaningful activity. Um, so in the book, I've tried to take it beyond that 14-15 season um, uh, because there's just so much more to that particular story. And why not tell us about it now? So, so football, <laughs> what happens to football in when the end of the 1914-15 season, which I think would must be in the summer of 1915, mm. are, is it played in 16-17-18? Uh, yes. And so, yeah, these are sort of the forgotten seasons, especially on the men's side. And so what, what the big moment is here, it's not, I mean, quite a very interesting point from a home front story is in the summer of 1915, the FA, uh, the football bodies as a whole are trying to decide what to do. The 14-15 season has been quite financially bad for many professional clubs. At the amateur level, lots of players have gone and joined up. And so it's about what kind of football season? Firstly, can it football continue? And if so, in what shape or form? A bit like we had at the start of the 14-15 season. And so in the summer, the FA decides that there, can, there will be no payment of players. So it's not the end of professionalism. So big major clubs do continue playing through the war. Uh, you say if you were in charge as a manager at Manchester United, you can still receive your, your money for your activities. But if I, as a player, uh, wanted to continue to play, I uh, could not be paid to play. Um, and so that's very interesting. It's almost a return, and basically it turns the game back to its pre-professional roots into the 1870s uh, and makes working class professional players amateur for the duration of the war. Uh, it also, they also say that they uh, football can continue as long as it doesn't interfere with the war effort. So what happens is the Football League and the um, clubs in London organise a series of regional leagues for the major clubs. So there's Lancashire, Midlands and London, where groups play in a regional format, cut down travel. Uh, and then at the amateur level, most county FAs, uh, some county FAs are still going and organising and encouraging play. Others have given up a bit during 14-15, especially when they had lots of players joining up. Uh, so from 14, from 1915, the summer of 1915 onwards, football is on a sort of a very quiet local regional level. And it very much depends the, on the attitudes of the local authorities and the clubs in your area about what level of football uh, is available to you as a spectator and as a player. 
but it does go ahead and you do have millions of fans still watching these regional games and lots of uh, players still play at the local level. And, uh, and then obviously you also then have women uh, starting to play on a much bigger scale. Um, uh, from about 19, through 1917 and 18, you have some uh, one or two early games in 1915 and 16. Uh, and then you have a much more bigger sort of women's football scene. Um, so very broadly speaking, that's the sort of the football that continues. And like I say, sort of the men's side does tend to have been uh, overlooked, but it's still very significant, I would argue, in terms of number of spectators. And then when you start digging into it, the actual meaning of the game to people, because in some ways its meaning is less, both less and more during that period, because uh, it's a, an escape from war, but it's also a key reminder of your pre-war life in very different ways. Well, tell us about that. So how did the war support not the war how did the how did football the fa and, and players support the uh, war effort uh, i think sort of like it's sort of i think i've when i was doing my notes this about three key ways i think it's the best way to look at it it's sort of like on the, obviously on your first side there's military service uh, so that ranges obviously from voluntary enlistment uh, uh, in 1914 and 15 and again sort of try to delve i try to delve down a little bit into this because at the professional level, professional footballers as a group are really interesting to study as an actual sort of work, work a group of working people. Um, and it had been sort of, I think, previously thought based on some statistics that have been out there in the contemporary press that they had sort of a volunteer rate of about 40%, which was seen as, you know, quite good in the context of what we know. I sort of dug down into it a bit more and I think that's sort of a lower figure based on the research that I've done, but actually more in keeping with some of the, the wider responses in sort of within different groups. It makes them a bit more similar to coal miners who still had a relatively strong response, but it's less like the middle classes. So there's military uh, service by professionals at the amateur game. Again, there's a really strong campaign amongst uh, the FA and its counties and individual clubs to encourage uh, am uh, amateur players to join up. And again, that's really fascinating when you dig down into sort of county responses, trying to understand where they fit into those regional patterns that we know and explore uh, right down to individual clubs. And it's one of the bits I try not to get too lost in lost in too many times because you often get sometimes it's wonderful you get a team photograph and then today with the wonders of uh, ancestry and all the other tools we have at our disposal you can start digging around to whole teams and then getting these little snapshots in different places of like, you know, one I found, it was like uh, suburban West Manchester, where there were clearly sort of middle-class clerks going into Manchester and Trafford. And then seeing how that particular team went to different places. Some of them joined up together and served in Gallipoli. Others went to other regiments and served across. So there's, there's that element to it. And then you get conscription, uh, which is fascinating because again, as a group, footballers go before tribunals and so, uh, that's fascinating exploring their particular story there. Uh, so that's sort of, uh, and then uh, what I was going to say, tribunals, and then um, uh, obviously conscription takes more players into the services. So there's that element to it. And then, so I'm just, it's almost a bit, I just have to remind myself in my little notes, sort of like, uh, hold on one second. Uh, and the second level is sort of, um, providing money for the war effort through deductions from gates at league games uh, special uh, and gates from special charity games or through fundraising activities organized by clubs and newspapers uh, and then the third aspect is sort of helping morale uh, of both civilians and uh, soldiers in general uh, and so in both those second case 
the second and third points there really that's something that's been really sort of underexplored I think in terms of football's contribution uh, outside of women's football to the to the home front story because uh, obviously when it comes to charity fundraising that's where civilians can get active themselves and so you have that real sense of clubs taking pride and engaging about how where the money they raise goes and encouraging people to make because uh, you also have collections at grounds again that's another way women can get engaged so you have women going around the terraces collecting for different funds I think in Bradford they had um, a, la uh, a lady and uh, several uh, women who sent like you know raised like four or five hundred pounds worth of like material to send to the front uh, and you have newspapers again being very active in that side so one of my favorite bits there was finding the Nottingham Football Post had a uh, where Nottingham had players, the cigarettes, uh, famous cigarettes uh, company there. So they had a nice little tie-in, so to speak. And so they arranged to send players cigarettes to the front. And you see, you could, they organised a big fund that raised about £300,000 uh, during the war, which is quite a substantial amount. Uh, and so you could send in, uh, they charged at the lowest level at like sixpence, then rate later up to a shilling for to just to send a single box of cigarettes to the front. And so you'd be given a, Postcard, a postcard would go out with a box of cigarettes. So then the soldiers could write home to say thank you to the newspaper or to the person who sent it. So each week, the Nottingham Football Post, alongside all the football gossip, has its page on its fund, uh, has pictures being sent by troops at the front or troops smoking that being issued generally. But then a summary, uh, literally every, every week, they'd have list every single person who um, contributed uh, and their address you could do a whole there's a whole separate project someone could do their mapping that all across but they had collections at pubs so different pubs were competing against each other pub regulars were writing back to say oh it's good to be not forgotten like by the white horse there you know the guys there thanks very much uh, and it's also quite poignant because obviously some cigarettes get sent out and whoever they've been sent to has been killed by the time they arrive so you have soldiers at the front posting back saying i'm really sorry uh, unfortunately you know he was killed that we've distributed to his mates, so thank you for that. Um, but yeah, it's just, and that that kind of stuff is just, you just find one source like that and you kind of think, well, I could do, you could all do a whole separate study on things like that. Now, I know your book doesn't cover this subject in great detail, but what, what impact did the war have on the female game? Um, so, yes, yeah, so I do cover uh, this as a, as a a chapter yeah it's interesting because there's so much research coming out on this this is it's with this particular area is worthy of a whole specific book in the future because uh, we're still finding out so much more about the women's game uh it what i found there was sort of what i've been able to do is probably one of the first sort of uh, broader studies on, on this specific time period so it goes from just having a few games playing uh, as women start moving into different areas of the of the workforce uh, during the First World War, obviously not as they haven't been present in the workforce, but increasing numbers, especially in male-dominated industries. Uh, and so then it sort of takes off partly as a recreational activity for women who want to play, who enjoy playing as a rest uh, from work, as uh, something new to do alongside the new work they're doing. And then there's also an important fundraising activity that they too can participate in. Uh, and partly because it's new and different, it, women's games are often sometimes very quite successful in terms of their fundraising uh, ability so they at the top end they can attract crowds of up to 20,000 for some of the major games and so what you have is very from a very small early basis you then mushrooms and you have not a uniformly across the country but in different areas you have uh, 
uh, different areas of popularity. So the Northeast is one of the key areas. And so you have a lot of teams playing. You have the first, some of the first organised leagues and cup competitions in the history of the women's game. Uh, and you also have even some people thinking like, well, women's football continue to take off after the war, you know, where there's even one person going like, oh, maybe one day we'll have professional female players. There's a sort of a big radical notion for people to get their head around. Uh, and so it is also one of, I say, one of the better known aspects of the home front story. Uh, so it's... Uh, what you see, unfortunately, is after the war that the women's game, unfortunately, is held back. That's almost like a, a separate story or something we'll probably touch on in a second, I'm sure. Which might neatly segues into my uh, penultimate question, which is what was the legacy and impact of the Great War on football? On, um, For instance, how was it played, administered and appreciated? And what sort of how did it shape the inter, interwar game? It's an interesting one because uh, arguably it. Uh, the war, uh, football's experience of the war is shaped by, in terms of that central moment when the FA decides not to pay players, that is shaped the wartime experience as almost looking backwards. It's obviously partly about trying to react to some of that criticism in 14 and 15, but is ultimately, and by doing that, it's saying that the game is an appropriate game, is one without money at the top levels for players. So that's a backward looking vision. So in the war, some people do welcome that. You have journalists talking about it, saying, like, oh, this is really great. You know, we're taking out some of these, you know, the excessive money. Players just lounging around waiting to play during the, uh, until playing on a Saturday. They've now got jobs. There's even calls for and suggestions that players should have to have jobs after the war. Um, but that sort of relatively as much as it goes in terms of that sort of approach to thinking of envisaging a post-war world. And it's a post-war world through the prism of wartime world and through a prism of pre-First World War world that's looking back to the 1870s, what you get is, uh, I think, common to a lot of the rest of society, it's very much about seeing that clock back to that 1914 clock uh, and sort of going from there. So the professional game quickly restarts. There are no limitations around wages brought in. Wages are restored and they go back up for players. Transfer wages, uh, sorry, transfer fees come back in very quickly and there's quite a, they start boosting up quite quickly as well because you've had all the disruption of war, uh, you need to rebuild your teams, uh, there's the same desperate grab for top quality talent, especially when it's hard to get hold of decent strikers or forwards who always cost a lot of money. Uh, so from that side, that's about looking backwards, as is the, ba uh, as the ba FA's ban in 1921 on FA clubs hosting affiliated uh, hosting uh women's football side so women's football is banned as in women are told they can't are not allowed to play it's they're not allowed to play on the grounds own uh belonging to clubs within the fa uh, but so that it's a crucial barrier because it basically means the space in which women can play is taken away they've got to find grounds or areas outside of the the official the, the main football areas and that's very much partly about sexism, uh, or very, I'd argue actually it's mainly about sexism in that regard. Uh, and so that kind of shuts off that particular development, uh, which is obviously then has a legacy because it took nearly another over about another 50 years before women's football, uh, the FA started engaging with it again. Uh, as obviously say, when we look at where women's football is today, you can see that long term legacy of that of that immediate post-war decision. 
Uh, one of the other things that does come in after the war that's interesting, or rather sorry, it stays after the war, is uh, during the war they introduced gate sharing, which is where they were to deal with some of the financial issues that clubs face through, due, reduced, through reduced crowds and the quite this big disparity between the crowds that some clubs got in, because major clubs like Liverpool, Everton could still attract rather decent crowds, make a profit, clubs like a Berry. Uh, for example, struggled badly uh, during the war. They had to do various different things to make money, such as like selling the timber from the from the stands, uh, letting sheep graze on the pitch. I think during one summer, uh, they did a deal with a local like pub landlord who had some sheep or some other things like that. So, I mean, that's one way of keeping the grass down, saving some money on the groundsman, I suppose. Um, so they introduced gate sharing, which when it was brought in in fifteen sixteen wasn't greeted enthusiastically, shall we say, by some of the big clubs. So uh, the 16, in the summer of 1916, when they're having the sort of uh, football league meeting about this, uh, some of the big clubs, Everton, Liverpool, the Sheffield clubs, the Manchester clubs get together and say, get rid of gate pooling, or we're not playing, we're going to form our own little league, which obviously has some perhaps echoes of the European Super League for people might remember last week. Um, and so all the poor, at that point, all the, the smaller clubs are a bit like, oh, no, don't do that. Uh, yeah, OK, right, we'll, we'll vote for that. You can... But then they're struggling so badly that the big clubs eventually decide that actually we do need the smaller clubs because then we might not have the games to play. So we will go back to some gate sharing. So at the end of the war, uh, this, they have a vote, so obviously, do we keep gate sharing of a, of a certain amount? Uh, and surprisingly, there's a vote in favour for it, although I think Everton is still opposed to it. Everton throughout were very, like, why should we prop up smaller clubs with like less money or ambition, all these you know, different arguments around them. Uh, and so that remained in place until, I believe, 1983. Uh, and when it went, it was one of the precursors to obviously sort of the, the what you see is this what you might call like the, the increasingly hyper commercialization of the professional game uh, from the 1990s onwards because uh, uh, the kind of the modern game we have with us today so by taking away that gate sharing you move one of those principles of mutual support and aid to each other uh, that paved the way for the, the modern game we have today um so yeah i mean uh at the individual, what I was thinking about as well is sort of those are the that's at the big level where it had at different individual lower levels. It did have quite a significant impact. Some clubs moved during the war. Uh, uh, so Queens Park Rangers were at one ground. They then had to give it up for munitions to be, become a munitions factory. So then they ended up moving uh, eventually to their to their uh, to to Loftus Road. Uh, I'm trying to think of the one or two. There were one or two other London clubs who also lost their grounds either temporarily or permanently because space was such a premium within London. Uh, but I think its most profound impact was probably at the level of individual lives, uh, in terms of lives just you know ended or disrupted players who had their careers lost to the war either through time or through wounds, uh, uh, both mental and physical. Uh, and some of those stories we just don't know because obviously it's that's the kind of case where it might have been a player who might have had a promising career to go on to and then they um, never came back or they came back and never had a chance to join their club. Um, I think I found there's some very touching stories with that we covered in the exhibition of people who did overcome that. So like Jimmy Seed was a player for Sunderland Reserves. He joined up, served in the DLI. He was gassed twice. Um, came back to Sunderland. They played him once in a friendly when he's still recovering from being gassed, which would be, uh, I don't know how I quite managed that. Um, they took one look at him after their own game. They released him. 
uh, and he then went to the Welsh Valleys, resurrected his career there, signed by Tottenham, um, helped them win an FA Cup, second division. After a little while, he wanted to keep on higher wages. Tottenham wanted to reduce them, so they let him go to Sheffield Wednesday, who were in a relegation fight at the bottom of the first division. Tottenham were mid-table. Without Jimmy Seed, Tottenham slumped, got relegated, uh, because Sheffield Wednesday just survived, um, because he helped them go through that. Uh, and then the following two seasons, they, with him as captain, they won two back-to-back first division titles. So like a Leicester, almost. Uh, but two years running, uh, they were that good. Um, and so that's a lovely story because it's heartwarming and he managed to overcome that. But obviously, how many other players were in a similar situation and just, you know, went back to whatever they were doing before. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and I think there's just obviously so many more of those individual stories to be sort of uncovered and explored, really. And my final question is, where can people learn more about your work, the museum and get the book? <laughs> well, the museum is in Manchester, so I should definitely obviously give them a plug. Uh, we're in central Manchester near um, uh, Victoria train station and Cathedral Gardens. So um, uh, it's a, you have to pay to enter, but it's a yearly ticket. So you can go back as many times as you wish within that. Uh, and you can see some material relating to the First World War on display there, including um, Donald Bell's Victoria Cross, which is on loan from the um, Professional Footballers Association. That's obviously one of our very special items on display. You can also see um, the Football Association's War Memorial um, uh, that they produced in the early 1920s there as well. Uh, for, I've obviously got to plug the book, which is coming out at the end of March. So hopefully hopefully on some bookshop shelves in April, uh, fingers crossed. Uh, and that's with Pen and Sword. Uh, but if you want to pre-order it now, you can get uh, five pounds off the, the asking price. Uh, I've also written, and I've also written one or two bits, uh, one, uh, including one article uh, related to the First World War in the Blizzard, which is a football quarterly football publication. Uh, and I've also written one or two academic bits as well. Uh, so sometimes they're more difficult to get hold of. So if you do want to contact me directly, uh, either via Twitter, where it's Dr. Alex Jack One, uh, or at the National Football Museum, if you just drop an email to Alexander. Dot, uh, sorry, alex.jackson at nationalfootballmuseum.com. I'll be happy to share research or just hear what people have been researching themselves. Because uh, having written the book, it's obviously it's one of those things you write a book, but you're still researching it afterwards. And I think there's just going to be quite a lot more that's still coming out there. Uh, so, yeah. Alex, thank you very much for your time. No, thank you very much. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>